This evening I'd like to talk about the four faces of love. In the tradition, we have a a beautiful formulation, a beautiful teaching called the four Brahma Viharas. Brahma translates as divine or godlike, like the gods, and Vihara, the dwelling place, the abiding place. And these four qualities are considered divine or godlike in the sense that they are without stress, they are without tension, and they have the potentiality of being unlimited qualities. And this is what I'm calling the four faces of love. Um, I'll name them. Some of you are very familiar with the list, and then I'll hopefully say a little bit about how that fits in with our practice here. So one way of looking at it is that when we are awake, when we are dwelling in the depth of our nature, that we're available in that moment. It's nothing special, but we're available in that moment. And the face of availability can show up in four different ways, depending on what the circumstance needs. So if you think of the Buddha when I spoke the other night about his, his teaching dispensation being an appropriate response, that sometimes the response, the face of the awakened mind that would show would be the love that we call <coughs> kindness. Sometimes it would be the kind of love that we call compassion, which is different, similar, related, but different. Sometimes it would be the kind of love that we call joy. And the fourth face of love from this picture is the kind of love that's called equanimity. Very interesting to consider this as a face of love. And hopefully I'll get there tonight. Equanimity briefly, the, the balanced mind, the equanimous mind which often we can tend to think on our conventional level, equanimity, not being moved by things, not being pulled or pushed by things. Well, the only way my personality knows how to not be pulled and pushed by things is to cut them off, right? Is to close down. But this equanimity has an open heart and yet is not pulled and pushed by things. So think about that. Think about that possibility, or maybe you've sensed it in yourself. Sometimes these things arise and we don't recognize them. So I'm putting them on the map for you again tonight to, so that we can recognize these qualities as they deepen and develop in our own experience. They're not esoteric. They're not just for later when you're a Buddha. You know, That view of postponing our awakening belongs... to the conventional view 
that postponing, waiting for a better moment. Have any of you experienced that this week? At some point, you're sitting there thinking, there's going to be a better moment when the bell goes, because then I'll be free, right? It's the same thing. It's the same thing as postponing our awakening till we're dead, for example, or till later, or even postponing a better moment when I get home. When I get home, then it will be better. You know, and the mind is very skilled at this waiting for a better moment. And I really encourage you, this is, for me, one of the most um, pertinent, painful, and apparent ways of studying dukkha, studying unsatisfactoriness. When we're sitting there in a sitting, and we're just dying for the bell to ring, because we're convinced that something will be better then. Something we can study this existential agitation of not possibly believing or trusting that right here is the doorway, right here, with this mind state, this knee ache, this silence, this despair, that's my doorway. No, no. There must be a better moment. When, I've, when they've given tomorrow's instructions, <coughs> right, or, you know, when we're... And, and it, it, we can see it at some point. We're sitting and it's going to be better when I'm walking. Great, can't wait for walking. Sounds so good walking. And then we're out walking. Hmm. It's probably going to be better when I'm sitting. We get a, a microcosm journey here of that pattern. And don't miss it. It's a really important one to see because it's the same pattern that's convinced. And I, I see it in my own mind again Again and again, recently or not so long ago, it was this fantasy coming in my mind of, yeah, when I changed the vinyl floor in my lounge to a wooden one, (laughs) that will be the point at which I can have my enlightenment retirement, right? No more searching anymore. The searching will be over. And of course, you know, we get the wooden floor and it doesn't go in right and the bit's missing. And it's very nice, wooden floor. (laughs) So that waiting, postponing paradise, which is what happens in religious traditions too. We're postponing the arrival and (coughs) bound forever to the seeking. So... Just before I pick up the four faces of love, the first piece I have to speak about, if we're looking in this territory, is what is the some teachers call the inner tyrant. The inner tyrant, the the downer on my love. That inner voice that tells you you're not good enough, you're not doing it right. Who do you think you are? sitting there anyway, constantly on our case, on our shoulder. Somebody described it today in the group. She said, it's like this kind of thing, kind of from this part of my head, it's just kind of here, kind of hovering here. All right? Sometimes we can hone in and really start to sense the energetic of it. But this inner critic, this tyrant, the one that tells us, We're not good enough, or if we're not doing it to ourselves, we're saying that the other one out there isn't good enough. Right? Or they've got it wrong. 
This we need to see first, this layer, this particular particular way that we have of confining ourselves, keeping ourselves down. As somebody else said in the group today, he could sense this, the opening and the, the love wanting to arise, that that was happening, the openness. But there was this subtle judgment of, no one's going to want that. No one's going to want you to be open and loving. These old views, not just about our difficult mind states, but also about our beauty, our nobility, that even that we can be down on. But we are in good company. You know, one of my teachers calls this structure, and I wonder for you if you hear it as thoughts in your head. I would really love to ask, but I'm not asking for confessions tonight. Right? Do you hear these thoughts in your head that tell you these kind of things, that get on your case? Most people do. Some people don't hear it. It's more like a kind of energy that kind of just comes in locks down, like the life force just gets squashed. We haven't heard the judgment, but somehow we've collapsed underneath of it. So I encourage you to look out for it. There are ways of working with it. One, One of my teachers, he said he was plagued by judgment. Judgment often comes, it's, it's a habit, it's true, but it often comes when the status quo is threatened. The status quo of who I think I am gets threatened. For example, when we're practicing, the status quo of who we think we are continually gets threatened. You know, we think we're a really nice person before we come to Guy House, yes. And then we're in the queue for lunch and we're, you know, have images of pushing people out the way or whatever it is. And we go, wow, look at that. I can't really hold so fast to that view, how great I am. There's all this irritation. can't remember what was there right before I gave that. That's the trouble with examples. <laughs> Give an example, I'll lose the thread. Hmm. Some people it's words, some people it's... Oh, yeah, some people it's energy. Yeah, the critic. Yeah. Ah, my teacher. That's right, he was... <laughs> You have to help me out. After the example, there's a kind of a little kind of earthquake. <laughs> he was, so it comes often when the status quo is threatened. You know, it can happen also when we get silent. I remember seeing for myself something was a beautiful opening in the heart. Just this kind of lovely quality was coming. And before I knew it, yeah, but you're ugly, really. It's like, wow, what was that? What was that? And he said that it was plaguing him so much at a certain point that um, he decided to start counting how many judgments there were in the day. That was his practice. Forget this Samadian insight. He's just going to count them. Number one, number two, number three, judgment number four, judgment number five. He said by breakfast, I think he had got to 56. 56 inner critic attacks had come by breakfast, and at that point, he laughed. Like, wow, 
It's it's very painful. It feels like the truth. But as we deepen in the awareness, as the light is shed on it, we see that it's a very fearful structure that's trying to keep the historical sense of ourself in place. We don't want the status quo threatened. In some way, we have an allegiance to our history. As much as we feel like we have an allegiance to the truth, we, we may have both. But sometimes those allegiances are kind of in a little battle. right? And the truth is, we can start to see it. They're the, they're the critics, the voices of the past. Keeping that status quo in place, that separate little isolated me who mustn't grow too big. Well, I remember one woman um, on a long retreat, she said um, she would practice, she'd be outside walking and be fine. And she noticed her, her critic arise as soon as she entered the door of the meditation hall. It was at that point that she noticed, right, it was a sort of it had the flavor of a commander with it. It's like, right, now sit down, be quiet, and be mindful. Right? Just keep in a way, if you follow the logic of that, this kind of just keep squeezing yourself smaller all the way to enlightenment. Right? It's trying to do the best for us, but it has the conventional view doesn't know and she had to she started to see that structure and named it her dharma fascist she called it it's like almost kind of like opening the door okay hi here you come welcome at some point we sometimes we really need to separate and say enough sometimes there can be humor and lightness it's like okay here's this little dharma fascist for the buddha he had this structure arise along the way and right at that night of awakening it's the story is told of Anatiko told a little bit of where the Buddha has his hand touching the earth before that moment the story goes that he was sitting there with that clear intention that deep commitment that I'm going to sit here and really discover what is possible for a human being to discover And when we make a profound commitment, that's another place the critic comes in because it's threatening the status quo. And in that moment of that commitment, a number of things happened, but one of the things that happened was the voice of the critic saying, who do you think you are sitting there thinking you can be free? You know, that kind of cynical, harsh... And in that moment, he had had enough experience to turn toward that and say, I see you. I see you, Mara, was the name he gave to delusion. I see you, Mara. And with that, he reached down to touch the earth. Yeah. Yes, I think that's the same mudra behind me. You can check it out later. And as he reached down and touched the earth, the earth bore witness to his right to sit and take the seat of the human endeavor for knowing our birthright, actually.
So it's not that we... Yeah, we don't have to be perfect. It's a different use of the word perfect tonight. Perfect in our egos, our personality sense of what perfection looks like, because we will never get there. We do not have to be perfect to take the seat, the seat which realizes the innate perfection. So we come to practice and we take this seat. We take the one seat of this human endeavor for freedom. We plant ourselves firmly in this world of immediacy, of presence. And sure, we get lost a million times. We see the delusion, the places where we're pulled and pushed, the things we believe to be ourself, the contents of our mind that we take hold of and say, yeah, that's me. I am this bad person. Or I am my mother's daughter. Or I am the best one here. And we take hold of something and we confine and limit the nobility. And in that moment of confinement that moment of taking hold, that is actually the suffering. The suffering of selecting out of the vastness some particular that I take to be me and say, that's me. This emotion, this sadness, this magnificence, this boredom. This is from Kabir. So it doesn't mean we have to be perfect. He says, The blue sky stretches out further and further. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forth with light when I sit firmly in that world. So it may be that we're visited by the pain of some of the things that have happened. That's different than making an identity in them. That's different than saying, I was bad, I am bad. Sometimes we're visited just by the simple regret, remorse, very different than the guilt that keeps us trapped in our head. So, already in that, that, um, that amount of working with the critic, there's a lot of love right there, actually. There's a lot of love right there. And sometimes we need a spiritual warrior in us to say enough as if we had a great playground mate and there we are being bullied by the biggest bully in the playground and some beneficent warrior comes in and says enough leave her alone it's like it's your hero right and that that hero is actually a quality we have often that energy of that strength gets caught up in that harshness to ourselves, But how would it be to be your own playground hero? Right? Enough. She reminds me, I, I used to be a, not a playground hero, I used to be a school teacher, a primary school in, in, in a London, 
And it was my first day on the job. I was 22 or something. And they didn't teach us about playgrounds, teacher training. They didn't tell us that part. We know about numeracy and literacy, but the part of what happens in the playground was completely... I hadn't done it since I was 10. And the first day, they say, you're on playground duty. They give me a whistle, and I'm out there, and there's all these kids. And these two little boys are really at each other. They're really at each other, really, very, very violent. They're really at each other's throats, and I'm... (sighs) (laughs) What do you do here? And a boy from my class, so these little boys are about eight, and this boy from my class came in as the playground hero, Desmond. And he came in and he said, are you having trouble, Miss McGee? I said, yes, I'm having trouble. He said, okay, let me sort it out. He goes, right, you over there and you over there. Don't want you to talk to each other till the end of play. (laughs) There, so it's nice, actually. I invoke the spirit of Desmond. Really? Really, that quality, that quality that can separate with a firmness and a kindness and a clarity for, for the welfare, actually. Acceptance does not mean we become passive, actually. Yeah. It's very nice to remember him. I haven't thought of him for years. Yeah. So the first face that I'll speak a little bit about is the face of compassion, the face of love we call compassion. Hmm. This is the particular face of love that knows how to resonate with dukkha. Dukkha translated as suffering or dis-ease or stress, unsatisfactoriness. Really the dukkha from the perspective of compassion, while it can touch any level of dukkha, At this point, I'm speaking of this existential level where we've lost contact with our birthright, where we've lost contact with the depth of the nature that we are. We've lost contact with what it was the Buddha was, uh, the Buddha discovered on his night of awakening. Anytime we're out of contact with our nature, it's suffering actually, it's loss. There's a disconnection. And the extent to which we do not know ourselves as the vast, unlimited nature. The extent to which we do not know that I am that I am, as Natika was talking about. That is the extent to which we suffer. The Buddha... His doorway in his teaching is the doorway of dukkha. That there's something about coming close to the unsatisfactoriness that is the gateway for us. It's not that it's wrong that we suffer or we've made a mistake or we're stupid because I'm not knowing my Buddha nature. Not at all. It's a knee-jerk response that happens again and again and again that we will cling through fear to the nearest, loudest thing in consciousness. 
the thing usually that makes that we hear the most. It was interesting today, the clock stopped working here. So I had my little clock here, and it was flashing, it's got big numbers on it, it was flashing 12.01, 12.01. And I was ending the sitting whenever it was, 3.30. My numbers on my clock weren't doing that, they weren't blaring. And my attention kept going to 12.01, it's 12.01. I mean, I knew it wasn't 12.01, but that's where the attention kept going, because that was the thing that was going, away. And, you know, that wasn't hard to discern the difference in that case, but very often the thing that calls the loudest, yes, it may need attention, and I'm going to speak about that, but it is not necessarily the definition of the deepest truth. So how to resonate with the things that do call loudly in us, our pain, our hurt, our despair, our sorrow, lamentation, our grief, or just that existential itch of something's not quite right here. Don't like it. In the moment of when that arises, most of the time we do become that thing. We become that structure. We become that confinement. It's all very well to say be mindful of it and breathe with it. But in the moment of being in it, we, it's the truth for us. Right? Sometimes it's states of frozenness. And if you have ever experienced that, it's like we've, we've just frozen up. Somebody left a note today, if I can find it. Maybe I can remember she said... Um, what I'm noticing is that the words that you're, you guys are saying, I'm, I'm getting them on some level, but on another level it's like they're hitting against a wall, right, bouncing off. And she expressed the, this... Um, I'm not going to start looking for it, it might take a while. Um, what to do with that? Because there's a longing in the heart to not feel like things are bouncing against a wall. So we have states that are obviously confined, like a frozenness or the sense of a wall, or the sense of that itch of it's not quite right. How to resonate right there? How to breathe with it? How to recognize the first step is the recognition. It's like, oh, oh, there's a wall. Wow, you're speaking, I kind of get it, but it feels like here's a wall. Can we... Resonate with the wall. Can we come so exquisitely close to the frozenness? The thing about compassion that takes my breath away is that it's intimate, more intimate than any intimacy our mind could dream up. It's not the intimacy of two things coming together. It's not the intimacy of me being intimate with my pain. It's intimacy that is beyond two. It is intimacy because the compassion knows it's already of the same fabric as the suffering. I'm not other than that. Whether my suffering arises here or there, I'm not other than that. How could I be? That's just an idea of where I place the world in compartments of there's you over there and that's your suffering. 
It's intimate, beyond anything my mind can imagine. And at the same time, it's not confined. It's not defined by the suffering. I don't know how that strikes you, but my heart rejoices that there's such a thing that's part of our nature and we see it to different degrees in each other. It's not like you have to wait forever. Intimate with suffering without being defined by it. Because we know probably both. We can either be intimate with suffering and we get enmeshed, right? We know that one. Or we're not defined by suffering, but we're saying, thank you very much, those people over there are the suffering ones. And thank God I'm not like that. Right? The heart has to close. Compassion is something other than that. The personality's version of compassion is to try and fix ourselves. That's okay. But the purpose of compassion, this exquisitely refined and defined for exactly you, for exactly the shape of your suffering. If you've ever felt the shape of your suffering, Natiko invited us on the first night. How does it feel in your body? I'm boring you? How does that feel in your body? Can you find the place where you can sense the structure, the wall, the woman working with the wall? Can you find the wall? Find it. Find out what kind of wall it is. Is it here? Is it here? Is it here? Is it like bricks? Is it like gossamer? What is it that's letting you know you feel separate? Because ultimately suffering comes down to that. Dukkha comes down to that. What is it that lets you know you feel separate right now, apart from the idea and the conviction, of course I'm separate, right? The conviction. Compassion resonating right there, intimate, not defined by our frozenness, pulsing, tender, more subtle than ether. More powerful than any known substance. And it's not trying to make the suffering go away. Compassion, like awareness, as Natiko was speaking about, has no agenda <coughs> for what should or shouldn't be there. There's a response, the quiver of the heart of love towards suffering. But the complete acceptance of, yeah, I'm right here. And the, and the um, what tends to happen in the face of our compassion or each other's is that those structures start to melt. In the face of love, we generally melt a little bit. That's why some of us don't know if any of you know this for yourself, are a little resistant to love when it comes our way. It tends to melt us a little bit. I remember once going to a temple opening where there was this beautiful, <coughs> beautiful kind of radiant old monk sitting there up on a little throne. And I could feel my heart really drawn. It's like, oh, something in us resonates. I could feel myself drawn. My legs wanted to walk towards... And as I felt myself walk towards, I was, oh, no, 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 no. 
No, no, no. Because in the walking toward love, whether it's someone out there or in ourself, it melts us. The status quo gets threatened. And our allegiance to the personality is strong. Mine is. I want to give an example. There we go. I knew there was something that had to happen. An example. So I can give an example from my experience. Um, Okay. I was sitting a long retreat one time, and um, at this particular place, it wasn't here, it was somewhere else. I'd come from Guy House, the old Guy House. And Guy House was characterized in those days by its kind of radical, radical Buddhism. We didn't have any Buddhas and we never did any chanting. And this was, and it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. But the trouble was, I had, that's what I'd become. I got an, a new identity as the, the, the one who doesn't chant. That's just religious stuff. I don't do that. A little pride, a little spiritual superiority. But I didn't know that I was superior. I just thought I was who I was. So I went to this other retreat center and they chanted a lot. And um, I didn't like that, which is fine. You're not expected, you know, liberation doesn't mean you're suddenly going to like chanting, right? But in my case, I would sit there every night while they chanted. It took me me weeks to see what I was doing. Sometimes it takes us a while to wake up to ourselves. Weeks before I was like... You know, sometimes the illuminating light of awareness, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the illuminating light. It's just I didn't see what it was shining on. I, I didn't quite get it until at some point. Hmm, okay. Who's suffering here? The story in my mind was that I was a little superior, so they were inferior. Personalities like to take positions, you've probably noticed. We're either better than or worse than. The Buddha even talks about another position where we think we're the same as. It's even another position. Isn't that brilliant? You know, it's not even that we're trying to have parity, that there's this something beyond that. And then at a certain point, um, because they knew that I could sing a little bit, they asked me to lead the chanting. At the front, the teachers weren't going to be there. I was just a yogi, but the teachers weren't going to be there. And they said, will you lead the chanting? Uh, and there was enough illuminating light after three weeks I could feel the contraction actually I don't think I felt it immediately but this kind of no don't you know who I am <laughs> I mean it's not conscious all this stuff it's, it's you know you can, you can see me as the most uh, hateful yogi of all time if you like but if you listen to your mind you know, these contractions have a whole little view and dialogue going on in there, right? No, not going to get me up there chanting. I come from the cool school of Buddhism where we don't chant. That's the real thing. We just go for enlightenment, not all this religious. And all of this, blah, blah, blah. 
who's suffering here? They asked me with such an open beauty, would, it, would you like to chant? <clears throat> this sense of self arose. Okay, I said, I think I had enough presence of mind to say, I'll think about you. <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll come back to you. And because of, you know, in normal life, I would have said no and still believed my opinions. The beauty of retreat, as painful as it is, that illuminating life doesn't light, doesn't give us a break. It's like we, what do they call it? We bust our own, we bust ourselves, we see it. Someone did in the group today, as I said, made a reflection of maybe you need a rest. And as I reflected that back to this person, they kind of did that and they went, oh, I'm coming up into my old defense that's, I'm not vulnerable, right? The illuminating light illuminates, can, sometimes it's immediately, we catch ourselves, we see ourselves taking the old shape, and we have a choice in that moment. Is this a pathway I want to follow? Not because now to chant at the front of that hall means I'm free and, you know, generous, but what do I want to cultivate here? Do I want to keep cultivating that strong, willful separation? Or shall I play with a different cultivation? So finally I said yes. Sat at the front, it was a big stage, it was a big retreat centre, big stage. And melting and these kind of echoes in the consciousness of, no, ah, you know, all these old echoes of myself calling through the tombs of time as the chanting began, and there I was doing it, right? And it's so liberating. Not because chanting is liberating. Let me make it that straight. (laughs) But because illuminating light gives us a choice about what we want to cultivate, and that's liberating. Gosh, that was all, yes... Not so long to go for the last three faces. Maybe, let's see where I go. Hmm. Okay, I don't think it will be all four faces. And actually, you know, these four faces aren't... They can show up discreetly, i.e. compassion can really come to the foreground, or joy might come to the foreground, the Buddha, for the Buddha, or for us, or a facsimile of it on our way to that, right? We don't have to be perfectly compassionate or perfectly equanimous. But also implicit in each one, in each face, are all the others. They may not be the primary face that's shining in that moment, but implicitly they are all there. It's a story I read a few years ago, but this I like. You can see if you can spot the four faces in this story. It's a true story. I know some of you have heard it before. It's taken from the San Francisco Chronicle from a few years ago. And it's a story about a female humpback whale who'd become entangled in a web of crab and lines, <coughs> crab traps and lines. So in the sea, she had got completely entangled. It's a very clear metaphor for our, our own suffering, actually. So here's what it says. 
She was weighted down by hundreds of pounds of traps that caused her to struggle to stay afloat. She also had hundreds of yards of line rope wrapped around her body, her tail, her torso, and a line tugging in her mouth. A fisherman spotted her just east of the Farallone Islands outside the Golden Gate and radioed an environmental group for help. Within a few hours, the rescue team arrived and determined that she was so badly off, the only way to save her was to dive in and untangle her. A very dangerous proposition. One slap of the tail could kill a rescuer. They worked for hours with curved knives and eventually they freed her. When she was free, the divers say, she swam in what seemed like joyous circles. She then came back to each and every diver, one at a time, and nudged them, pushed them gently round. She thanked them. Some said it was the most incredibly beautiful experience of their entire life. The guy who cut the rope out of her mouth says her eye was following him the whole time that he was doing that. And he will never be the same, is what he says. Yeah. My compassion is clear. The equanimity, what kind of presence of mind it takes. The kindness, and I just say very briefly, kindness, one way we can look at it is our kindness grows the more we recognize what kind we are. What kind am I? The more I think I'm an isolated, separate kind, this is my limit. The more I practice, the more I live, the more I inquire, I see, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sensitive kind. Oh, there's a sensitive kind. I'm a kind that feels. I'm a kind that is impacted. I'm the kind that has these kind of mind states. I'm the kind that has those kind of mind states. I didn't think I was that kind, but I'm that kind as well. And our kindness, rather than being limited to our particular family or group or the people who we think we have the most in common, we recognize that we're the same kind as anything. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel your future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted carefully, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead at the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. 
how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it, till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters, letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. What's happening now is, well, it's nearly time to end, and there's joy and equanimity. That's the equanimity, that's the joy. (laughs) The joy wants to tell you everything. The equanimity says, maybe it's enough. Holding both. So very briefly, just the the headline really. Joy as the quality of love that has to do with delight. It's light. It has a lightness of touch. Some of us have a belief that lightness isn't deep because we haven't understood it yet. Lightness we associate with those people that say, oh, don't worry, be happy, it's all all right while you're suffering and in pain. Lightness is no stranger to depth. Depth at all levels, depth of pain, but beyond that, the depth of our nature. How would it be to meet the heaviest thing inside with a light touch? Not to say, I have to be joyful, not at all. This light touch. Shimmering, almost. The shimmering aspect of consciousness that we don't notice necessarily in ourselves, but it's here, it's just... Hasn't come on our may may not have come on our radar yet. Maybe some of you know it very well. But this light, gentle touch. Mm-hmm. 
and check it out for yourself, but um, this is what I find to be so, that what truly delights our heart is coming closer and closer to what is true in ourself and in each other. Something in us rejoices, that rejoicing. Even if what we contact is difficult, but we're there. We make contact and say, yeah, it's like this. Something about coming into contact with truth lets the heart rejoice just a little bit. It's a relief, for one thing. The burden drops because there's something about the truth of the way things are in this moment that is a real doorway. And we recognize the real. Our heart is a barometer for recognizing what is real in ourselves and in each other. There's something about the real that we love, delights us. In the small groups, you can sometimes experience somebody says something and they're expressing what they, their truth, and something in us resonates with that. A little rejoicing. And it can be very simple also. Here's a little poem. This light quality which you sometimes see in children. Consider the generosity of a one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers you her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green dinosaur as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long pigtails, If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle or a fistful of grass or a pebble by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes every simple object an offering. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares her divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. Please forgive me if it's too much, but there's one last thing I want to read. (laughs) The, The quality of love that is equanimous. has a a still quality, doesn't necessarily have an affect to it. Compassion doesn't necessarily have an affect to it either, but this equanimity has a kind of, yeah, an airy stillness to it, like the solar system. It's kind of big black and open 
and equally near to all things. It's not distant, it's equally intimate with all things. And it's very profound. So I'm going to end with this quality, uh, this poem. I like this one very much. And I have never read this one here. It's called Yes, We Can Talk. Having loved enough and lost enough, I am no longer searching, just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk a while, but then we must listen. The way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn at all that goes wrong, but then we must lay all distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door into the endless breath that has no breather into the surf that human shells call God. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door into the endless breath that has no breather into the surf that human shells call God. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone, but seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it is a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that human shells call God. So let's sit for a minute together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.